Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This week we have a special guest on the show, Professor Felicity Boardman, who works at the University of Warwick on the ethics of genetic screening and genome editing. Specifically, she's co-leader of the Imagined Futures project there, which looks at the impact of new genetic technologies on those with rare genetic conditions. Now, this is a little outside the topics that we usually cover on this show, but at the same time, I think it's an extremely important and underappreciated topic. It's, it's really about how the genetic technologies of today are already impacting people and not so much about the far future. We had an excellent conversation and I hope you enjoy it. So first of all, Professor, thanks very much for agreeing to come on the show to discuss these issues. I'd like to start with some background. Um, you're a health and social scientist at the University of Warwick and your research, broadly speaking, involves exploring the attitudes of people with genetic disabilities to new technologies surrounding the genome, such as genome sequencing, screening and genome editing. So can you tell us about your story, how you came to be interested in and research these issues and what your research typically involves? Yeah, well, I suppose I should start with the fact that I do have a genetic disability myself, um, which was an important influence that I think I should mention because I had direct experience myself of uh, living with, um, I mean, I've got a generalised dystonia, which means that I use a wheelchair full time. And um, that experience was really influential to me because at the time I was thinking about having children myself. Um, when I was at the point of wanting to do my PhD, and I've gone on to have two children. So I was thinking very much about the issues surrounding um, genetics, disability, and reproduction at that point. And um, I became interested um, in spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and um, I became interested in it, actually, because, I mean, I have a friend who's got that condition, but um, it's an interesting condition as well, because it presents so differently. So in its, it's got a wide spectrum of presentations. So in its most severe form, um, infants um, usually only live till about 18 months with type 1 SMA. But with type 4, um, they can um, live a typical lifespan and, it's, and it can be a very late onset condition. And I became interested in the way in which these families made reproductive decisions when they may not know exactly where on the spectrum of severity their future child's life would be. And I was interested in what role their sort of uh, family experience with the condition, having already had a child with it, was useful in helping them imagine what those what that child's life might be like. So there's a bit of a kind of a, a personal story um, there as well as to how I became interested um, in, do, in doing research in this area. But as I got sort of more involved in the area, I, I also noticed that people with genetic disabilities weren't being involved, I thought, as much as they could be um, in around some of the ethical uh, discussions around genetic technologies. Um, there was a much more of a focus on the views of clinicians, scientists, sometimes members of the public as well. And so I feel like one of the main drivers um, of my research is the belief that people with genetic conditions have the best insight into what life is actually like with genetic disease. And I feel like that understanding of what life is actually like is so important to the direction um, of the field of genetics, um, because if we need to make decisions about how we're going to apply these technologies, then understanding the lived reality with genetic disease is, for me, at the absolute core um, of those kinds of decisions. 
And I think it's it's very interesting because, you know, reading some of your work, which you kindly sent over to me before this interview, um, the one thing that it really struck me about was that actually quite often, particularly from uh, my perspective as someone who who doesn't know anyone with these conditions and isn't really involved in any of the communities surrounding these conditions, um, these dilemmas, these ethical dilemmas can be presented as a sort of a macro, a big ethical dilemma that faces the whole of society as to whether we should or shouldn't use such and such a technology to do such and such a thing, whether it's genetic screening or modification or whatever. But actually, within that massive ethical dilemma that faces society and is almost viewed as a top-down policymaking issue, there are many, many, many micro uh, dilemmas, such as the one that you faced yourself when you're thinking about um, the ethical considerations that you personally have to make in your own life. And that that is sort of not the way that we see these things. And I think um, it's it's really important that we have some rebalancing uh, towards individuals and uh, the sort of specific circumstances of mm. uh, of families and family life, particularly in these cases. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where um, you know the, the um, insights of people with um, uh, disabilities can really help, actually, um, because I feel like if you are someone who's being presented with, say, a screening decision, and it's about a condition that you know nothing about then I think in many ways the best expert you could consult is someone um, or a family who is living with that exact same condition. And that doesn't really happen as much as it could do. And there are all kinds of reasons why that is challenging. Um, You know, I mean, there is the uh, issue that that kind of lived experience is quite um, idiosyncratic and that it's hard to kind of extrapolate to the lives of other people. Um, And, you know, there could be a pressure on the disabled person to present a very positive image of their life. Um, But I still think that there is some value in seeing the difference between looking at just a clinical presentation of a condition, which is what you'd probably get from a doctor, you know, this condition is associated with these particular clinical problems, and the way that that gets translated into lived reality through the lives of people who have it. And I think that we're not very good at making that imaginative leap. Um, And so that's why I think that knowledge can help. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And I think that's very true that, you know, as you say, it's this clinical presentation quite often in, in language that people won't be familiar with um, and implications that they won't be familiar with. Um, especially if it's you know a, a fairly rare condition, most people won't know anything about it um, a priori because why would they? So it, I suppose it's, it comes into where that kind of family history and so on can become important as well. So just sort of stepping back a little bit, I think it's important to understand uh, the context of how the technologies associated with the genome and genetics have developed recently. So we've had episodes on this show in the past on, on CRISPR gene editing, um, and it now feels to me at least like biologists have tools that are imperfect, um, but they they allow us to read and write the language of genes. But we're actually able to read and write a language that we don't entirely understand. There's actually very few uh, incidences where you can um, conclusively link, say, a a trait or a particular condition to a known set of genes. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the majority of variants are are still of unknown significance. And there's a real weakness around understanding conditions that involve complex combinations of genes, as well as the role of epigenetic factors as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suppose... Could you just briefly explain what epigenetics is? Um, I think that's important. 
So it's to do with the interaction of genes with environmental factors. Um, uh, well, it can be the role of environment. It could be other biological stimuli as well. Um, so it's the way in which our um, genes and um, wider environment work together um, that isn't well understood, as well as how the um, many genes can work together to create a genetic disease. Um, and this is often the case with lots of um, cancers as well, that many genes are involved um, and epigenetic factors are involved that aren't. And it's the interaction that is not particularly well understood, even if the <laughs> genes themselves have been um, identified. So it's predispositions, it's um, statistical associations, but the sort of causative factors and the way that they interplay with other things is still uh, very complicated and therefore not very well understood. Yes. And so the kind of the risk factors that you can end up with can sometimes be a bit misleading because, um, you know, being told that you have a risk factor for um, cancer, for example, um, it, it, genetics is really quite quite bad at being able to accurately predict um, complex conditions like that. And I think being, you know, being given a risk factor, um, even if it's quite a low one, can still be quite alarming for people. And it leaves them in a bit of a dilemma about how to handle that risk factor. Um, so I um, and this is becoming uh, more of an issue, I think, as direct consumer genetic testing is really sort of taking off and promising uh, people the ability to kind of look into their future, um, genetically speaking, and, and see what kind of conditions they might get. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that through that, those kinds of promises that we can get an idea about genetics, that it's actually much more certain than the reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's sort of level of uncertainty in how to interpret what we can read that is still extremely important when it comes to how individuals can make decisions. Yes, absolutely. So what what would you say are the, are the most important technologies and changes that have developed recently? And I think, as, as, as we've sort of discussed prior to this, with these technologies, there can be a lot of emphasis in the popular press on these far-flung potential futures with designer humans being enhanced by genetic modification and so on. And there's actually a lot less focus on nearer-term applications and applications that are going on uh, directly at the moment. So, I mean, your research focuses on applications that are either happening now or in the near future. Um, where do you think the sort of ethical and moral dilemmas are coming in with, with those kind of technologies and also in, in the far term, if you want to comment on that as well? Well, I think there are two important changes that have happened. Um, and one which you alluded to was the human germline genome editing technologies. Um, and I think this is really important because it um, has the capacity to change the human human germline. So what this means is that it can make changes that are, that are permanent, that they'll be inherited by future generations. Um, and I think this is really an interesting technology because in many ways it kind of makes us, as human beings, have to really think about what it means to be human and how far we want to interfere in our own um, evolution, as it were, and to engineer our own uh, gene pool. So it really forces us to take a look at ourselves and ask what makes us human and what things we could sort of happily remove from the gene pool. So we're really trying to get that boundary right between what is a disease and what is a sort of marker of diversity. And that's what um, th this technology really forces us um, to be clear about. Um, 
And I think that that is a very difficult boundary um, to assert. And it's certainly one that could get more um, sort of grey as time goes on and much less um, black and white. And, and I can see how very easily this concept of designer babies can come into this debate. Although I, in some ways, I think the debate isn't actually particularly helpful because it can be a bit distracting. Although, of course, it certainly makes very good headlines. It's an idea that people can really kind of um, grasp onto and it, it's very dramatic, um, very evocative term. Uh, but it can sort of cloud the true purpose of the technologies. Um, although I do think that in the future, um, it's probably going to surface again, um, because I think that there, when you introduce a technology like that, which has the potential um, to uh, engineer human life, that there will always be from some sectors in society pressures to expand the acceptable usage of it. Um, and we'll need to think really carefully about what is an acceptable use of it, um, you know, and, and what is a disability. And, you know, are things like, you know, uh, left handedness, is that a disability or, you know, is that, you know, um, a sort of just a characteristic, a, a benign characteristic? Um, and having to make those kinds of decisions uh, is probably going to going to come up uh, increasingly. But I, I do think that we're not as close to that as perhaps the headlines suggest. Um, the other thing that I think is important is whole genome sequencing. And I think this has had a really big influence on the field of genetics. So this is the idea that you can sequence um, a person's entire genome in a very short space of time. I think it actually takes like less than an hour now, something like that. And when this was done in the in the original Human Genome Project, it was the combined efforts of hundreds of scientists and millions of dollars and took many, many months. And now, you know, it's available, as you say, to thousands of people up and down the country if they want it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it it changes it changes a lot of things because it, as it's become cheaper and more accessible, um, it's sort of it's become just more readily available. And it paves the way for a kind of different approach to genetic medicine, a move away from sort of targeted genetic testing to genome-wide testing, where whole panels, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of conditions can be looked for simultaneously. And I think that that really also opens up the commercial side of genetics even more, um, this idea that you can do it so quickly and, and cheaply and tell someone, a, you know, this, this sort of wealth of information about themselves. Um, and I think that that is something that's probably quite appealing um, um, to people. Um, the problem is, though, as we've kind of already said, is, is this issue of, in, of interpretation. And whilst whole genome sequencing can just produce this mass of data, what that actually means is something of a bit of a, a, a difficult issue. And I mean, I do think that this is becoming um, more of an um, issue, though, from the point of view that um, in the next year or so, Genomics England is due to embark on a pilot study um, where they're going to sequence the genomes of 20,000 newborn babies, healthy newborn babies, um, to potentially alert the parents to all sorts of things, uh, things like propensity to future disease, their carrier status for, for conditions. And whole genome sequencing is also being used to screen couples so in um, Australia and the Netherlands, there are pilot studies underway 
where the sequencing is being used on couples either preconceptually, so either before they've uh, uh, conceived a pregnancy or in early pregnancy. And they're looking for um, autosomal recessive conditions. So these are single gene conditions that require two carrier parents to transmit. Um, the estimates are somewhere around one in 150 couples are estimated to both be carriers of a um, of these kinds of, of the same hereditary disease. So the likelihood that these sorts of screening programs will actually flag up quite a lot of couples um, is relatively high um, and will sort of alert them to the fact that they may have a child with a condition that they've probably never heard of before. And it raises the question really about how much information we want to know from our genome, what risks we're willing to accept and how we want to have children in the future. And it sort of conjures up uh, images of couples early on in their relationships, checking their genetic compatibility for deciding you know, whether this is the person that they want to have children with. And I don't think that's either is sort of necessarily an unrealistic idea either, given that in some communities, um, the Jewish community, for example, where there's a much higher chance of um, children being born with Tay-Sachs disease, this sort of premarital screening is quite, quite common practice. Um, so it has the potential to impact the sorts of relationships that we have, um, but it also has the potential to lower the prevalence um, of some of these autosomal recessive conditions um, in society. And I think we need to really think about what that means um, for us as a society, a, a society that sort of uh, is supposed to at least be premised on ideas of diversity and inclusion and tolerance, um, and think about whether or not, uh, I'm thinking about the, combati the combatability of that uh, with the idea of um, genome-wide genetic screening. So I think, for me, those are the two um, technologies that I think have, have brought about the biggest changes and are and certainly the biggest changes to um, society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I think just picking up on the second point there a little bit, um, what in terms of the screening, one of the aspects of your work that uh, really stood out to me when I was reading it is the concern that let's say everyone does decide that a certain condition should now be subject to screening and the condition then becomes less prevalent over time as a result. There, there's a trade-off in some senses um, because you could argue that if you think the condition is a quote bad thing, then uh, there's people who don't have to live with the condition. Um, but then there's also a trade-off in terms of the quality of life for people who already have the condition if this happens um, mm -hmm. due to things like, for example, there being a smaller community. So, I mean, I, I can speak to uh, something that's not entirely related to this, but a little bit similar. My uh, my younger brother um, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes recently, and he's found an awful lot of solace and uh, helpful advice and um, generally a sense of you know community that has made it a lot easier for him to you know adapt to that um, in a sort of online uh, type 1 diabetics community and so having this sense of community of people who have you know a similar condition obviously that, that is type 1 diabetes is quite common so that's quite a large community is, is very important uh, for people living with different conditions so I mean th this is one of the trade-offs that I think that your work alludes to and I think it's uh, an interesting thing to explore if you'd like to comment on that a bit more. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that point you raised about your brother is is a really important one. And it's come up time and time again in, in my research that peer-to-peer support is really important. And and I think it's also important that we don't sort, sort of overstate what genetics can do. We're still going to have disability in different forms. So being able to support the um, disabled people that we do have is, is really important because there is a chance that if screening comes in, that disability comes to be seen as more stigmatised. Um, and, I, and I've done some interviews um, with families living uh, with children with Down syndrome. And what I found really interesting is because Down syndrome is a condition for which prenatal screening um, is done, is offered for every pregnant woman in the UK, that some of these parents feel that they have to almost like justify the existence of their child, that there's almost like a felt um, sense of, well, why didn't you screen? You know, why is this child here? And and I was really struck by um, how it changes their experience of being in the world when there's a screening programme for um, children with their condition. But the peer-to-peer support is really important. And I, uh, again, coming from those interviews, um, some of the parents of children with Down syndrome said things to me like, you could never underestimate the value for my uh, child with Down syndrome to go into a room and see other people that look like him and to have his life reflected back at him in the society in which he lives. And I thought that was quite a um, quite a powerful thing, actually, and something that perhaps we don't think about so much when we think about reducing prevalence of conditions is how that's going to impact the people who are already here with those conditions Um, And how actually when people have less experience of them, because the prevalence is decreasing, how that affects our own understanding and our own tolerance um, and how that lack of awareness might impact on the way that we treat them. And I think, you know, the the other issue as well is is to do with um, research and, and treatments as well, because as a condition becomes less prevalent, um, that it can be harder for researchers to apply for public money for research into that condition because um, applying for any research money, one of the first things you have to say is that it's an important, i.e. prevalent health issue so that your research is going to have maximum benefit. And so if we're talking about smaller and smaller groups of people, um, it becomes harder to access that money. And this is what sort of the rare disease community has to kind of face um, all the time. And I I sort of, I suppose, finally, I I just think as well that there are consequences in terms of um, our tolerance for all disabilities in society. And I think that all of the families that I have interviewed who've had disabled children or disabled adults themselves have all said that however difficult their experiences have been at some point, that they have all learned something or gain something through the experience of having that disability in the family in whatever form. And I suppose I just want to us to be aware of what that what that loss looks like, as well as what we might gain um, from decreasing the prevalence of these kinds of conditions through screening. Like, like a lot of research in the social sciences, your your work collects both quantitative and qualitative data. So 
uh, a, a typical paper might consist of a, a series of interviews with people with a given condition, which also includes them, uh, you know, to discussing their responses in a, in a quantitative way. Um, what value do you think that each of these types of data brings to the field? And um, can you tell me about maybe some of the conversations that you've had that have perhaps changed your mind on a particular issue or, or made you uh, think about an aspect of this that, that you hadn't before? Yeah. So, um, yeah, as you say, I use qualitative and quantitative methods. Um, and partly I do that because this is such a complex topic. Um, so I felt going into it that not only did I need a breadth of opinions, and that's what survey data can give me, um, you know, because I can reach a, a much larger number of people, but I also wanted the kind of rich qualitative data to be able to pull out some of the um, nuances around people's views on this. Um, because as I said, people hold very complex views and we can often miss that if we force people to tick a yes, no answer in a survey. And it was really illuminating to me, actually, because um, I would do surveys and I would find, for example, that there was um, certainly in, in quantitative terms, quite good support for screening programmes, say, within a particular group. But when I kind of drilled down into that, it often showed quite a lot of ambivalence that people were saying, yes, they want screening, but actually they would have a lot of reservations about it. Um, it's just that when they were forced to come down on either side, they would say things like, well, you know, I, I, I suppose, you know, having that information is better. Um, and the qualitative interviews gave them a chance, I think, to discuss um, some of the, the, um, their reservations. It, it captures... I think it captures really well people's toing and froing that you can't get in quantitative data. And I think on a topic area as complex like as this, um, it's really useful to capture some of that. And um, I mean, I do try and um, in terms of things that have like changed my mind, I mean, I do try and go into this as kind of neutrally as I can. But I have been surprised um, by things that have come up in the data. Um, I mean, to, to start with, I mean, um, it was just how reflective people are about it and how deeply people have thought about it. I mean, these are people who are living with genetic conditions, so they're far more familiar with genetics than uh, the average person on the street. But how how the, how deeply they grapple with some of the ethical issues around screening. Um, and so that, that was kind of... Um, surprising to me um but it also I think I was surprised um as well at how important stigma was um and I, I sort of went into this knowing that stigma is an important uh, issue for people living with genetic conditions but what surprised me was that um it it could almost be as disabling as the condition itself um, so I did some interviews with families living with um, thalassemia and uh, thalassemia has a higher prevalence in um, people of South Asian origin. And interviewing some of these um, people from South Asian communities, they were saying that within their communities, uh, the condition is so um, heavily stigmatised 
that if a person's diagnosed with it, their whole family sort of becomes blacklisted in a marriage market where they're no longer no longer seen as sort of marriage material. And so it's almost it's not the condition that's stopping that person with thalassemia or their siblings from marrying. You know, they could go on to, to marry and have children and all those things, but it's the stigma associated with the condition. And so I was really, I suppose, surprised at how powerful that was. And I think it's important to sort of think about the factors that 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 sort of the sort of social layering on top of the conditions that also affect people's um, ability to live their lives in a fulfilling way um, that aren't just to do with the condition. And, and I think that's why it can be, that's why some people with genetic conditions feel like th- that screening is putting the emphasis in the wrong place or genome editing is putting the emphasis in the wrong place because we're talking about eradicating disabilities, but maybe if the resources were perhaps funneled into removing some of the barriers that the people that we've already got with disabilities face, that maybe it would be a more, um, that the experience of disability could be completely overhauled. And that if we had a society that was completely adaptable and accepting of people with disabilities, then we wouldn't need to remove them. And, And that's not to deny that these conditions can and do cause suffering. Um, they, they absolutely can do. And I think it's important to say that, to, to mention that and to not sort of say that all these conditions could sort of be um, cured or, or relieved through the changing of social conditions. Not all of them could be. But I think it's important that we take into account that there are a large number of them that actually this, this is um, an important area where, that, where lives could be improved um, in ways other than uh, genetic intervention. Um, and I think the reason I wanted to ask about the quantitative and qualitative data is uh, I'm a physicist, lots of listeners are too, and I know that we love everything to be extremely quantitative, but particularly <laughs> when it comes to ethical issues like this, I think the amount of nuance that you miss off by trying to quantify everything into some perfect utility function and so on is is, is just renders your discussions, you know, very stilted i guess and you you need that qualitative understanding of of people's lived experiences to to even start to discuss these things in a in a sort of reasonable way um but even even when we talk about um people's lived experiences even within communities of people with genetic conditions in their families obviously there's a lot of uh heterogeneity there's a lot of differences in attitudes um and there will be uh social and other factors which will influence people to have different attitudes to the questions you're asking. Um, Would you like to talk about some of those and some of the differences between um, people's attitudes within uh, these communities? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, mean, it's probably worth me mentioning some of the conditions that I uh, was looking at in my research. So I did interviews, um, I, I looked at conditions that were relatively prevalent in the UK population. Um, and I also try to include conditions that presented in very contrasting ways. So the final list was thalassemia, spinal muscular atrophy, haemophilia, fragile X and cystic fibrosis. And I'm also trying at the moment to do some work around um, Ulstrom syndrome, um, which involves sensory um, impairments. 
And these conditions present in really different ways. So some of them are neuromuscular, some are multi-system conditions, some involve intellectual impairment, and say some sensory, and some are associated with shortened life expectancy. And a condition like haemophilia, for example, is now increasingly treatable. So I also wanted to look at differences between people if there was a treatment for the condition um, that may not cure it, but may um, have a dramatic impact um, on its symptoms. And um, so I looked at the sort of range of experiences across this very diverse group um, of people living with genetic conditions. And there were a lot of differences um, in how they um, responded to genetic screening. And I sort of found a, a sort of list of um, sort of five key points, I suppose, that, that those differences hinged on. And um, one of them was whether or not the condition in the family was early onset or late onset. Now, it, it may be quite surprising to some people to think that actually it was the people who had early onset conditions who were much more likely to be critical about screening and to be much more happier with living with their condition and see it as part of who they were than people who had late onset conditions or sort of, you know, conditions that onset in sort of the second or third decade of life. Um, and that, that I mean, that surprised me um, somewhat as well. But um, I noticed it particularly um, with spinal muscular atrophy because um, I got to really explore the different presentations of it. So people with type 2 SMA are people who've usually never been able to walk. So they've had their condition pretty much from birth. And I compared their views to people with type 3 SMA and type 4 who are much more adult onset. So their condition will gradually deteriorate over time. And there was so much more negativity about what SMA meant amongst the type 3 and type 4 adults than there were against the type 2 adults. And many of them were saying, you know, it's because this is the way my life has always been. I haven't lost anything, you know, and because I knew that, you know, I've set my life up around this condition's existence. I didn't live my life able-bodied and then had to watch myself decline, which is what some of the other ad the adults with the later onset forms had to do. So some of them had, you know, not realised they'd got this condition until perhaps they were in their 30s. They'd already maybe had children and they'd maybe gone into a physical career that then they had to give up. Relationships declined because of the onset of the condition. They'd had a series of losses often. And those sense of losses meant that they were more likely um, to view their condition as something negative, as something that was more of an intrusion in their life and to see it as something external from themselves. And so there was that big difference between the early onset sort of group of respondents and those who had late onset conditions and this kind of related to whether it was um, stable or whether or not it deteriorated. Um, another thing was around how much stigma they'd experienced versus how much so social support so I mentioned this being particularly um, an issue for families affected by thalassemia um, it, the the view of thalassemia came across as very negative um, from within that group and the more I dug into that the more I realized how much stigma was a part of them seeing thalassemia so negatively um, even though it's a condition that can be treated 
um, it was it was seen in very negative light because of the sort of devastating impact that it had on people's lives with it. That was a lot to do with, um, you know, negative social stigma. Um, but there were also the issue of how much suffering was involved with the condition. And when I say suffering, I mean things like how much pain someone was in, whether their condition made them feel very unwell those kinds of issues, whether they had spent a lot of time in hospital. Um, because if people thought that the condition involved suffering, they were much more likely to support a screening program for it, um, which, which, you know, makes sense. Um, but what I think the participants were keen to point out was that um, suffering wasn't always where people expected to find it. So, um, you know, people with type 2 SMA were saying things like, people expect me to be the one who suffered the most because I've never been able to walk. Um, but, you know, um, and that people with type 3 don't suffer with their condition because, you know, they've, it's much milder. And yet the, the sort of narratives of suffering were much more coming out in, in the sort of type 3s and, and type 4s. So, um the sort of perception of suffering and having um, uh, having pain, and that can include psychological pain as well. And then finally, whether or not there is healthcare treatments available, and also kind of the burden of those healthcare treatments on someone. So um, with thalassemia, there is there is treatment available, but people have to go for regular blood transfusion and chelation therapy as well to remove the excess iron that gets built up in their bodies from regular blood transfusions. Many people found that exhausting as well. So there is this kind of, um, there's those kinds of factors that um, influence whether or not these groups of people saw screening as positive or negative, and whether or not they viewed the condition as positive and negative. And there were some really um, interesting findings in that people who have early onset conditions, whose conditions were relatively stable, who'd come from pretty supportive families, who felt that their condition didn't actually involve that much suffering, those were the people who were really critical of screening and actually felt that that um, sort of eradication of their disability wasn't a way that they wanted society to go in. They saw it as part of who they were and they couldn't understand why it was kind of seen as a disease. Um, you know, to them, it was just who they are. And you see that a lot as well with the deaf community, um, who um, who very much see deafness as a cultural identity with its own unique language and heritage. And, you know, the idea that it's a disability is in many ways quite a foreign concept to, to, to the deaf community. So... It, it's those kinds of conditions that I think we have to really think about um, in terms of um, genome editing and genetic and sort of eradication through through screening because the way that they are experienced by the people who actually live with them may not be the same as what people who don't know them perceive it to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And just picking up on a couple of points, I think um, it's interesting to say uh, this concept of suffering and this sort of a question of objective suffering versus subjective suffering that that you brought up specifically when we're talking about conditions that are early onset and late onset. Mm. And you know, if, if you if you were to try and get some sort of calculator um, 
for example, there's the concept of uh, disability-adjusted life years, mm. um, which is sometimes used uh, to assess um, the impact of different uh, health conditions on people. You, you might calculate that someone who had an early-onset condition uh, was more impacted uh, than someone who had a late-onset condition. But what that would ignore is the fact that, one, someone's subjective experience has changed, and in some ways all all sort of suffering, all emotion is, is changes relative to a baseline that you're used to, isn't it? When we think about our own personal lives mm-hmm. and uh, what makes us happy and sad, we're sort of uh, adjusting things relative to our own personal baseline the whole time, and that will be different from person to person. And also, as you say, there are differences in objective suffering based on people who have, as, as you say, put, put their lives uh, in, a, in a certain um, context compared to uh, a different context. So I don't know if someone's a professional athlete or a keen sports person or something, um, they would objectively suffer more. Uh, sorry, they would subjectively suffer more, even if objectively they are, um, I guess, impaired from doing that in the same way as someone else. Yeah. And I think it, it's, it really comes down to how uh, complicated and idiosyncratic this idea of suffering is. And it makes it very difficult um, to to stick a number on it and compare two conditions together uh, as as we might want to do with something like um, quality adjusted life years or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really um, you know qualities are a really difficult um, topic um, and and how you I mean how you define quality of life because as you say you know someone who's had this you know, early onset condition, maybe seen to have had, you know, uh, have lost out and everything. But interviewing them, it's not that they don't experience it as loss because they never had it. Um, it's just, you know, they, they haven't had any other awareness of being in the in the world any differently. And I think that we need to take that lived experience into account and sort of not approach it just through kind of the paradigm of clinical severity, because those people with type 2 SMA would be clinically defined as more severely affected. Yet it's the um, type 3s who are clinically milder who feel they've suffered the most. So I think the sort of this is where I think that the kind of the stories and the voices of people with genetic conditions really have something to offer um, some of these debates about how genetic technologies are used because they give a form of expertise that can't you can't get from uh, from that clinical um, way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think. Uh, one of the other things that comes up with this is I was wondering when reading this, like what is, to what extent do you think this is a tension around attitudes surrounding identity? So for example, if someone considers a condition part of who they are, um, if not defining them and sort of identifies with that condition uh, and the community that's with it perhaps as well, um, versus a group of people who would want to separate themselves or all their loved ones entirely from the condition and, and say, okay, here is, you know, the person that I know, and then here over here is some condition that uh, that afflicts them that is separate from them. Um, and I feel like this is a familiar paradigm well beyond um, the sort of genetic hereditary conditions that we're talking about. I mean, people people with depression might feel the same way, that, you know, that is, is this tendency to depression part of who I am, or is it something that is separate from me that I would remove from myself if I could? Um, I mean, is, is how much of this comes down to 
questions of identity that are quite sort of hard to untangle and depend on the person. Oh, absolutely. Identity identity is absolutely critical to how people um, thought about these issues. It was very much how much they internalised um, their impairment and thought of it as part of who they were or whether or not they saw it as um, an external force that had come into their lives and disrupted it. That was absolutely um, key. And again, it came down to um, the point at, at which it had come into their lives. So, you know, if you do have it early onset, you're much more likely to uh, incorporate um, your impairment into your sense of identity than if it if it comes um, later on. And I think as well, if you're someone who has a condition that onsets later, um, perhaps um, it deteriorates or it goes through periods of deterioration and stabilisation, you're having to go through lots of kind of identity renegotiations as those things happen. So you're kind of having to um, constantly rework who you are based on what's going on with this with this condition. And that can cause, um, it can cause a lot of um, feelings of loss for people um, when they are sort of watching deterioration and they have to almost kind of do a sort of form of identity work. Um, there's this concept um, in social science research called um, biographical disruption. This idea that um, an illness can cause a kind of um, disruption to your life trajectory that you have to kind of reconcile. Um, and so for people who have conditions that sort of come into their life later on, or sort of dip in and out of their lives as it sort of, if it comes in episodes, are having to do that work quite a lot. Whereas someone who's had it from when they, you know, from birth, hasn't had that same disruption um, in the same way. So it, it's a very different sort of identification with the condition. But I agree that it's absolutely critical to the way in which people think about disability. So returning to one of the dilemmas that you said your research focuses on quite a bit is um, the, the question of who makes the decision and when it comes to parenting decisions and so like this. I feel like a lot of people might not object to being given the option of having some information to make difficult decisions about their own reproduction. Um, and ultimately, you know, they'll need to assess things based on, say, their own financial stability, their family situation, all that kind of thing. Um, how do we balance the right of the individual to make decisions with with the impacts on wider society that you explore in your work, whether whether they're positive or negative. And what information do you think should be presented to people in these positions? And almost how should that be decided? Oh, very, very difficult yeah, questions sorry, to answer. Solve the entire issue for me, please. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And I, I, I think that the kind of the kind of rhetoric of informed choice and right to information and, and right to kind of have, um, uh, to be able to make these kinds of decisions for ourselves is really what's kind of driving the expansion of genomics. Um, this idea that we want more and more information, we want more and more control. Um, but what we don't talk about so much is that the more information we have, um, the more responsibility we have. And I I suppose I'm concerned that 
increasing the amount of information that people have, particularly at these sort of critical junctures in their lives, like reproduction, is that you're also giving people quite impossible dilemmas and decisions. Um, and, you know, information can complicate things in a lot of ways. And the thing with with genomics as well is that it alerts people to risks that they weren't aware of before. So you're actually kind of introducing them to work to a world of risk that they didn't know was there. Um, so most people, for example, won't realise that one in 40 people is a carrier of spinal muscular atrophy, or that one in 25 of us is a carrier of cystic fibrosis. And so once they start being made aware of um, these kinds of risks, um, there's a kind of felt sense of responsibility to do something about it. Um, and that can, I think, be quite difficult for people um, to manage. And we don't very often talk about how knowledge can also be quite burdensome um, for people. Um, and I think that um, sometimes as well that the idea of being able to make an informed choice is perhaps a bit of a fallacy in some way as well, because um, actually, how can you make an informed choice um, about a condition um, thinking about reproduction here, about a condition that you know very little about. Perhaps you've only like heard the name before. Um, and that you know, this is where I suppose that I could see that that kind of rich knowledge that these families have and that people with genetic disabilities have could really help the process um, by giving some of that expert insight um, um, to people who are in these really difficult um situations and being asked to make um these kinds of decisions and i remember um interviewing someone who had sort of found out through um genetic screening um that they'd had done privately that they were um a carrier of cystic fibrosis and it, they, they said you know i i've been given some information but it's almost not quite enough information to be able to base a decision on. And then, you know, they're having to kind of figure out the rest themselves. And I think we're kind of, um, the people are totally unprepared for a positive result when they go for screening, that they are doing it for reassurance usually. And so um, when it doesn't come back and give you gives you reassurance, and it in fact comes back and tells you there's risk of X, Y, Z, that people are quite un unprepared for that. Um, so I think it's very, very difficult how we kind of um, weigh, weigh the kind of the rights of the individual versus this is sort of societal, some of the societal impacts that I've, um, that we've, we've talked about today. Because I suppose I, I feel that um, in many ways that the increasing amount of information that people get is, isn't always helpful um, to begin with. Um, certainly when we're starting to, you know, um, introduce um, whole genome sequencing and, and, and screening people for potentially up to a thousand conditions at once, um, I think the only way that that something like that would work is we if we have a very um, comprehensive sort of infrastructure of support to enable people to make um, decisions that are in line with their values. And um, I think that that would be a very, very difficult thing to implement. But I think without it, the risks of 
negative societal consequences increase if people are making decisions um, that are based, that are fear-based or ignorance-based um, because they haven't got um, access to good quality, balanced information about the conditions. And I think that's what's sort of most concerning. I suppose part of the issue that we have is that there's a sort of set of maybe quite perverse incentives when it comes to the use of genome sequencing um, to predict people's future and their genetic future, because the people who are doing this, particularly if it's done privately, you know, they have an incentive to overpromise and overdescribe what they can tell you about your genome. And people who are interpreting it almost have an incentive to overinterpret uh, what what the information that they're getting. Um, and they won't necessarily have a frame of reference for uh, knowing about both the details of the conditions that are being discussed, but also um, the the relative risks involved and, and, and what it means for there to be a risk. Yeah. And you can sort of see how that could lead to, as you say, putting a lot of extra uh, stress and pressure on people uh, to try and make decisions w- without all of the necessary information, or it just becomes some very, very complicated minefield for people uh, rapidly that, that, you know, it might not have been in the past due to, I suppose, ignorance. You know, disability is becoming something that was sort of a matter of um, chance and sort of luck, as it were. And we're now trying to control that chance or luck um, through genetics. Um, And you can see how in some ways people, um, how it's kind of easier to leave up the chance and luck than to face some of these really difficult decisions that it leaves people with. You know, um, having to make a decision about whether to terminate a pregnancy when you don't know for sure sort of the, the, the expected severity of that condition for that particular life is a nearly impossible decision. And I think it could leave people feeling very tormented, whichever way they make that decision. Um, so I think there are so many gaps um, that, that need to be filled um, before this is kind of um, offered to um, everyone for incre- for lists of increasingly rare disorders that, that the chances of anyone having met anyone with, with that condition is very slim. Um, so just moving away then from, from some of these near-term applications and the specifics and towards the long-term and, uh, and general uh, topics in this field, I mean, we're going to see, I think it's inevitable, well, one can argue with technological inevitability either way, but it seems likely that uh, genetic editing technologies and genetic screening technologies are going to be uh, developed and applied in lots of different contexts um, in the future. What do you think the role of ethicists and social scientists should be in uh, educating the public and gathering information and determining how these technologies are being developed and applied? Um, are there some areas of technological development that are that are going on at the moment that you think are important or potentially disturbing? And what, what would you like um, the general public or the listeners of the show to, to know that's sort of on the horizon that we should be paying attention to? In terms of what I see ethicists and social scientists as being able to do, I think that we need to be opening up conversations about this. I think we need much more um public dialogue and um that you know we had the um geneva statement earlier this year on um, germline genome editing and one of their primary recommendations is that we need to have um 
public input because the kind of the the, the ethical values um, that that we have as as a society are so important and need to be translated into some of these um, technological processes. And I, I feel like at the moment that that we don't have very good structures for um, for bringing them in. Um, and I feel like that's really important. I think that's somewhere where ethicists and social scientists have a role to play um, in bringing in some of these uh, of engaging with the public and taking some of those um, uh, some of the values that come out of that to um, people who are developing the, the technologies. Um, and in terms of sort of future directions, I mean, we've talked about what I think um, that I think um, genome editing will eventually become more commonplace and will be done in humans. I mean, we know that it's already sort of been um, done in humans already, or, or, although um, that sort of created um, sort of a, a worldwide kind of um recoil and horror that it had already been attempted but we're referring specifically to this incident of the CRISPR babies uh, in China yes scientist uh, who ended up actually in in prison as a result of that for um, creating a set of twins who'd had the um, gene I think knocked out that would leave them susceptible to HIV I think um, mm-hmm. and so that was the aim yeah, I think that that's going to become more commonplace. I think um, that reproduction is going to become increasingly um, technological. Um, I've I've been um, sort of reading a bit recently about this concept of artificial wombs that I found um, quite um, disturbing in many ways. Um, I think it's it you know this idea of sort of gestating a fetus external to the body um, uh, completely changes um, debates around um, abortion and the role of women in society. Um, the, the sort of there are um, potentially major social consequences of a technology like that. But overall, I think that um, reproduction is going to be increasingly subject to technological intervention and that it's going to be subject to more and more, to want for a better term, quality control. And um, that's something that as a, you know, with a kind of social science hat on, I'm very concerned about because I feel like, you know, the, the people who are developing these technologies are almost sort of standing at the gates of who we let into society and who we don't. And mm-hmm. I feel like that we need to make sure that the kinds of technologies that they're developing and the ways in which they're implementing them are in line with what the public wants and in line with the values that we as a society espouse. Um, so I suppose that those are my sort of um, major concerns for the way in which we're going at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think, although perhaps the designer baby uh, issue is is overegged a little bit, there is a concern that just part of the dynamic of how these technologies work is that they do, once available, kind of push people in one direction. You know, I mean, it's the case of if um, lots of people start to use a screening technique, say, then that in turn influences the balance of 
how uh, how much support someone with a certain condition could expect to have if they were to be born. If you see yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Um, and it's sim- you know similarly when we talk about uh, more abstract things such as changing people's intelligence and so on, there's always the argument of well, when does it not become your choice to do that anymore because you simply have to keep up with the members of society who are going to choose to do that. And particularly when it comes to things like, uh, you know, unclear interpretations of genomes and genetic factors, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you somewhere there will be some sort of Silicon Valley type startup that is saying, um, oh, we'll do genetically based employment screening for intelligence or obedience or something. And they, they have all these sort of things in the works that might be based on some quite kind of loose and uh, unclear statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, because unfortunately, there are some people who I think just want to discard all of this complicated ethical discussion in favor of a very kind of uh what they would consider to be a hard-headed quantitative approach to these sort of issues and i think that in some ways that's a kind of societal danger when we look at these technologies is just to say oh it all gets lumped together with progress so to speak i mean and that's why i think your 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 argument that the general public needs to be more aware of these issues and, and what's coming over the hill is 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 very important yeah, and I, I think as well that there are different interpretations of the sort of the term enhancement as well. And, um, you know, th- there's kind of enhancements where you're thinking about, you know, I- improving intelligence, making someone, you know, better looking or with better athletic ability or more intelligent. And then there are the kind of enhancements as well where, you know, you could think about, you um, making human beings more resilient to climate change for example or or that kind of thing so enhancement gets sort of um defended in in different ways that if perhaps we don't sort of adjust to climate change that maybe that will you know lead to diseases um over time um and i think the type of enhancements that i'm most worried about are the ones um that give that are designed to give um, certain people advantages over others, and I'm very much concerned that um, you know this could um, lead this could further re- reinforce inequalities, um, and you know not everyone um, will have access to genome editing. Um, it's you know it's it's an expensive technology, and so I would be concerned that it would mean that um, you know people with these um, enhanced traits um, would have even more benefits over those who couldn't afford um, to have their own to have their children genetically engineered. Um, so there are sort of aside from the kind of the question of whether it's um, whether or not we should do it, it, it. There's also questions around, you know, actual implementation and how the very fact of bringing it in could could lead to and, and reinforce all kinds of um, inequalities um, in society and exacerbate ones that already exist. So, sort of returning a little bit to your research, then. I mean, I think it would be interesting to ask, how do you think we can begin to tackle some of the issues that your research? is uh, is bringing up for society um if you were in charge of these things uh what would you do or what would you recommend for people who are in charge of it to do um to uh, help i suppose bring this debate out into the open and uh allow people to make these decisions um 
in, in a way that more effectively aligns with their values, I suppose? Well, I think as a starting point, we need more exposure to diverse views. So we need more exposure to um, the perspectives of people who live with these conditions that could be screened for. And that's something that we don't have very much on. So when I started doing my research, I was really surprised that actually there was there were no studies that looked at the views of people with spinal muscular atrophy towards screening. No one had kind of thought to ask them. Um, and so I was really surprised that people with genetic disabilities are kind of seen as irrelevant to this argument because, you know, screening is targeted by its very nature to the general public. They are the intended recipients of screening. It's not the families with genetic conditions. They already know that they're affected. But their views, I hope, as, as shown today, um, are very relevant because of this expert knowledge that they have, but also their stakeholders, because as, as we said earlier, the introduction of screening affects them in, in very direct ways. Um, so I would hope that um, there would be more, more exposure to the voices, for one thing, of people living with these conditions that could be screened for, but also their inclusion in sort of policy making and implementation of screening programs. So I'd want to see more people living with these conditions on sort of the, the committees that decide which conditions should be screened for. Um, and in terms of implementation, being involved in the way in which people are told about the conditions and the types of information that they're given about the conditions. I think that's really um, important and isn't done as sort of well as it could be at the moment. Certainly with um, we're seeing this kind of um, play out um, with Down syndrome screening and the kind of reactions that have come from families living with Down syndrome. Um, there's a campaign called Don't Screen Us Out. Um, and they are uh, a group of people who are quite critical about the way in which Down syndrome screening is uh, delivered. And they want a lot more um, balanced uh, information about what it's like to live with Down syndrome uh, and a move away from just focusing on clinical implications of the conditions. Because as we've discussed today, the clinical judgments of how severe a condition is don't always have much to do with the lived reality of it. Um, they are quite separate things. And I think we need better ways make that imaginative leap into the life of someone who could have this condition. It's something that's come up a little bit recently in terms of the field that I mostly deal with, which is climate change. We have in the UK now, we have a climate citizens assembly uh, where they're bringing together you know, ordinary citizens with a range of jobs and a range of views and a range of lifestyles and experiences and so on to discuss these issues and make recommendations. Um, they're having you know guided conversations about uh, the UK society's response to climate change, which of course is quite complicated in terms of the different impacts that it has on different groups. And I, I wonder if maybe there's a role for something a little bit like that, where you'd bring in um, people with these conditions and their families as stakeholders to discuss these things. And uh, and when panels are making decisions, that would be part of the input. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are involved um, on some committees, so the um, HFEA, so the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, whenever they're making a decision about whether or not to grant a licence for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, 
they would have someone with the condition in question come in when they are making the decision about is this a severe enough condition for us to grant a license for PGD to happen in this particular instance. Um, so I think that kind of um, involvement is really important because I think we need these people's views on what they think um, a severe condition is to live with. And, you know, as we've said, what severe is to one person may not be to to another. Um, you know, if, if you're, um, you know, interviewing a, a, an athlete who puts a lot of emphasis on physical prowess, then having a child with SMA to them might sound like the most distressing thing in the world, whereas it might not mm-hmm. be to another person. Um, so it, it's it's not cut and dried. Um, and I think that we need to hear more diverse voices and we need to make sure that we're not relying too much on just clinical definitions. So uh, the last thing I'd like to ask then is uh, what's what's next for your research? What's uh, what's coming up over the horizon? I've spent quite a lot of time now um, interviewing people with genetic conditions uh, specifically, and I'd like to do more work with the general public, um, understanding mm-hmm. what they think severity is and what the general public want from screening programs and genetic screening programs in particular. Um, You know, I'd I'd like there to be some uh, uh, ethical framework drawn up um, that could reflect some of their views that that could be used to guide the implementation of genetic screening. So that's something that I've kind of just sort of got in the back of my mind as something that I'd, I'd like to sort of look at next, definitely moving towards exploring the views of the general public. Um, in the more immediate future, um, I'm doing these, hoping to do some interviews with people with um, Ulstrom syndrome um, later this year. But also that um, there's been, um, so I've been experimenting with different ways of um, getting my research findings to the general public. And as you've probably gathered from what I've said in this interview, I'm really passionate about uh, people with genetic conditions having their voices heard. So one of the ways that we've got, um, we've managed to translate this is by having a group of um, artists um, come in and translate my research and my research findings into an art installation. Um, And this art installation is called iDNA, and it's been touring the UK for the last year or so. Uh, It's been to the British Science Festival, uh, amongst other science festivals as well. And it's actually going to Leamington Pump Rooms, the art gallery there, in spring next year, um, COVID allowing. Um, So if anyone wants to come and see that, they're more than welcome. It, It includes some of the actual voices of people living with genetic conditions and them talking about the impact of their condition. And it encourages people who attend to really think about what they would want to know from their from their own genomic sequence and um, it, it raises the question of you know do you almost like want to look inside that box from from the point of view that once you open it there's sort of no closing it again and um, what you would want that information for and what you would do with it so that's hopefully going on next year if it if it if we can't do it in person it'll be created in some sort of digital format 
and uh, that, that would be good as well because we i know this show has a lot of international listeners as well who probably won't be able to make it to leamington spa yeah um but it would be interesting to see if at some point it could be digitized and uh and made available to everyone That's uh, i mean one yeah yeah that would be great um, the, the other thing to say is just if there's anything that uh, you'd like to plug in terms of um, places where people can read your research or find or go to find out more. Um, so the project um, is called Imagining Futures, this research project that I've um, been working on. So you can find me on Twitter at Imagining Future. Um, and also, if you go to my um, Warwick page, so warwick.ac.uk forward slash Imagining Futures, you will find um, a website there with um, further details about the research and you should find links to all the papers on there as well. OK, that's great. Uh, Professor Boardman, thank you very, very much for coming on the show and being so generous with your time and telling us about your research. It's, it's not an area that we've covered uh, very often on this show, but, you know, <laughs> reading some of the stuff you sent over, it was so fascinating that I was really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, I'd like to, you know, thank you for being so generous with your time. So, right. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find Professor Boardman's work at the Warwick website. Her previous articles have been on The Conversation and there are several talks on YouTube as well, so I urge you to check all of those out if you're interested. Remember, you can find us online at physicspodcast.com and on Twitter at physicspod. Do send any comments, questions, concerns, topics you'd like to see covered and so on to the contact form on the website and I'll endeavour to email you back. I generally respond, but it does come from my personal email address, so you might want to check if it's getting filtered if you don't feel like you've had a response in time. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash physicalattraction. For a few dollars per bonus episode, you can subscribe. You won't be charged until a new bonus episode is released, and there's already a few there for you to download, which should become automatically available on subscribing. It's a way to help the show. I think generally uh, Patreon is a very, very good platform for allowing independent content creators like me, who is just doing this in my room in my free time, um, to get some remuneration for what we do without depending on big advertisers. So by all means, check that out not just for me, but for any podcast that you enjoy, because chances are everyone has one. Now we'll be back soon with a new episode. Until then, please take care.